Oh, hi. It's your friend Ellie, and you're listening to Butt Out Baby, a scene-by-scene recap and analysis of the 1987 masterpiece Dirty Dancing, a film that gets a lot of love, but not enough respect. This is scene six coming in hot a good half year after I published scene five. Thank you so much for staying with this podcast. I'm splitting the scene into two episodes. The first time I've done that, probably not the last. This part here will focus on Baby and Neil's conversation while they're awkwardly dancing. In the next episode, we'll talk about the Mambo, Tito, the band leader, Johnny, and Penny's dancing. But first, here's your bird's eye view of the first half of scene six. After dinner, Baby and her family attend the evening dance in the Kellerman's ballroom. Baby is stuck shuffling around with Neil, making small talk. After he learns of her Peace Corps ambitions, Neil tries to impress Baby with his plans to join the Freedom Rides in Mississippi. The Granular Recap We've left the dinner to later in the night in the Kellerman Ballroom, or what they call the Playhouse, which is a bit creepy. The first shot is from above, looking down at the couple's dancing. There's lots of gray hair and bald heads, including the Schumachers right in the center of the floor. It's like a Where's Waldo with them. The dominance of older folks lends itself to Max's later conviction that the Catskills Borscht Belt era is coming to a close. There's a stage at the front with a live band and a prominent band leader we'll talk about next episode. With the music, you can mostly hear the sax and the of the brushes on the drum. On the soundtrack, the song is called Trot the Fox by our friends LaDisc and Michael Lloyd. According to Wikipedia, the foxtrot is similar in its look to a waltz in that it's smooth and flowing. For further explanation, here is part of an instructional video from 2001 from a show called Shall We Dance? And today we're going to be covering the foxtrot. Gentlemen, uh, this is considered a smooth dance. So what we do here, we don't use any hip movement. We're going to be bringing our feet together. The, the men will begin with their left foot. The ladies will begin with their right foot. Essentially, it's two forward walks, men. Forward, forward, and side together, okay? It's slow, slow, quick, quick. The big thing here, ladies, is to get your feet out of the man's way. 2001 was a bleak time, what can I say? Well, what I can say, actually, is that since last recording, my last recording for this podcast, I've since been to a two-hour salsa boot camp with my girlfriend, my friend, and her wife. There were also a couple of queer men there, and it was at a dance studio that didn't describe itself anything other than a conventional dance space, and the dance instructors were a straight couple. And there was one time when the woman caught herself saying ladies instead of follows, uh, but she quickly corrected herself and the male instructor at one point demonstrated a move on one of the gay guys. So it can be done, shall we dance? I was learning to lead, and as Maria talked about in episode three, learning to lead can be, it was intimidating, but that's literally what the dance instructors are there to help you with. Back to the film. The next shot is close on Baby and Neil dancing. You can see Robbie and Lisa behind them. Neil is the one facing the camera at first, but you can still tell that Baby is mostly looking at her feet and avoiding eye contact. Neil's grinning at her like a little creep and dipping his chin down, just making his face unavoidable to her sight line. 
I think a lot of young women will know the moment where you can feel a guy staring at you and you're doing everything to avoid looking at him because you know that the second you make eye contact, they'll take it as an open invitation that you're interested in talking. Not that Neil even needs that because he's so secure that his class status would make him desirable to women. So he opens the conversation by saying, going to major in English instead of asking what are you going to major in? He's just assuming she's taking English because she's a girl, a girl also heading to a women's college. Then, of course, we get Baby's amazing line. No economics of underdeveloped countries. I'm going into the Peace Corps. I remember watching this as a kid and being like, she's going to major in what? As far as I can tell from Mount Holyoke's website and records, economics of underdeveloped countries was not a real major in 1963 or ever, probably. Speaking of Mount Holyoke, remember last scene when I was confused why Jake was like, baby's going to Mount Holyoke in the fall after it was mentioned that Neil was at Cornell? And I was like, those colleges aren't even close to each other, so like, why bring that up? And then it finally occurred to me that I did not interpret that correctly, and so I zoomed my parents to ask. And... When I was like talking about that scene last episode, what I said in the episode is like, I'd always assumed that he offered that up because Mount Holyoke and Cornell were like in the same city or something. And so I looked it up and I'm like, oh, they're not at all. Like they're not close at all. Then I was like, oh, is he just saying that in like, oh, my daughter is also going to university? I was like, that's so random. No. You're already shaking your head. And so it's it's only today when I'm now like in the next scene where baby talks about what she's going to major in. And I was looking up Mount Holyoke and I was like, he's probably referencing something else. So what 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 were you going to say, mom? Oh, well, it's just that Cornell is a status school. Is it considered an Ivy League school? It is. Mount Holyoke. It is yeah. It, yeah, and Mount Holyoke is what, I don't know if they refer to it anymore, but it's a seven-sister school. The equivalent of an Ivy League school for a woman was a seven-sister school. So he's saying that she's also going to a status school. And it's a school that's hard to get into, that costs a lot of money, and it's equivalent then with Radcliffe and Smith and all of those. Okay, I have two follow-up questions. One was, Dad, did you want to go to any of the Ivy League schools when you were looking at universities? No, it wasn't on my radar. Apparently, my dad told me, I, I, I didn't remember this specifically, that the guidance counselor at my high school, pretty sure I could get into Brown University, which is make one of the lesser Ivy League. <laughs> and it is Ivy League. Poor Brown University. I know at least one of you listening will remember the scene in The Simpsons where Lisa is having a panic hallucination that after flunking a test, Harvard will pass her over and then she'll, God forbid, be forced to go to Brown. <gasps> no, not Brown, 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 Brown. You're saying Brown an awful lot. And then my last question, Mom, is just if you could describe a little bit the culture, because you went to Smith. Or was it two years or just one year? Two. Two. Um, and I remember you telling me the story about how they would sometimes have combined school dances with like which which of the like male colleges. 
I don't know if anyone but freshmen participated in this, but they would bus us for mixers at Yale and Princeton. I think we even went to Dartmouth. And I remember uh, you telling me some story about somebody coming up to you and asking you what high school you went to. Yeah. And then when you yeah. responded, he just walked away. Was that yeah. What it was? Yeah. I don't know what percent, but a big chunk of the women at Smith would have gone to some kind of elite prep school. And, you know, that would be an indication of the wealth of your family and your whatever genealogy or where you were from. I just thought it was funny. (laughs) You know, it didn't bother me. You know, it was more like, oh, I'm not in Kansas anymore, I guess. My mom said she felt she was at the tail end of this kind of intense, snobby Ivy League culture, but she's younger than baby, so we can imagine how ingrained it still was in her time. So it doesn't matter that economics of underdeveloped countries is not a real major because with baby's follow-up of I'm going into the Peace Corps tells us a lot in a short time. She's not afraid to reveal these interests to a high-status boy, and the movie is reiterating her interest in the wider world and a desire to help. And the fake major also gives us a clue to what the Peace Corps is all about if you're not familiar. We mentioned the Peace Corps in scene one, but I'll take some time now to talk about it further. Much, much further. Peace Corps. It's an American program, obviously, usually for college graduates, not always, and it's two years volunteering in a foreign country. It's a very new program at the time of the film. There were and are similar programs in other Western countries like Canada and the UK. At its inception, the framing was very much Peace Corps volunteers going into needy countries that were not as developed as the US. In JFK's famous inauguration speech of 1961, you know, the one that has ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, which Robbie will paraphrase at Lisa later in the film. Well, in that same speech, JFK says to those people, to those people in the huts and villages of half the globe struggling to break the bonds of mass misery. We pledge our best efforts to help them help themselves for whatever period is required, not because the communists may be doing it, not because we seek their votes, but because it is right. The first three countries to accept Peace Corps volunteers were Colombia, Ghana, and what was then known as Tanganyika, which was a short-lived colonial name for Tanzania. The name coming from Lake Tanganyika, which I learned is the second deepest lake in the world by maximum depth and mean depth, only after Lake Baikal in Siberia, which immediately makes me want to know what kind of water creature mythology exists in these places, because Loch Ness is nowhere even close to as deep as these lakes. I feel very misled. So it's interesting that JFK says we're going to help the people in huts not because the communists are doing it, because over and over again I 
read historians describing this as the biggest motivation for the Peace Corps, right? On the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum website, it says, the Peace Corps program was an outgrowth of the Cold War. And then they quote, uh, JFK is pointing out that the Soviet Union had hundreds of men and women, scientists, physicists, teachers, engineers, doctors, and nurses, prepared to spend their lives abroad in the service of world communism. At a famous impromptu late-night speech at the University of Michigan, JFK asked the crowd of gathered students, how many of you who are going to be doctors are willing to spend your days in Ghana, technicians or engineers? And then he goes on to say, on your willingness to contribute part of your life to this country, I think will depend the answer on whether a free society can compete. We talked a lot in scene two about how inspiring JFK was to people of baby's demographic. And so it makes sense that in the summer of 1963, she would have been completely infatuated with the idea of the Peace Corps. And in 1961, shortly after the Peace Corps was invented, the New York Daily News published an article that analyzed thousands of interviews with teens about their thoughts on the Peace Corps. The article opened up with, would they be willing to join, colon, to live for two years in an underdeveloped country to work hand in hand with natives? The article said that city teens were more interested than farm teens, and also kids who came from higher incomes and educated families were more likely to want to volunteer. So we have a checkmark and a checkmark for baby there. The author of All You Need Is Love, The Peace Corps, and The Spirit of the 1960s wrote that the Peace Corps dawned on a sunny day in U.S. history. The new program appeared to present pure altruism. Well, as we know, that optimism didn't last for long. As the JFK Library website explains, in the 1960s, the Peace Corps was very popular with recent college graduates, but by the 1970s, the Vietnam War and Watergate eroded many Americans' faith in their government. Baby's plans are to serve in the Peace Corps after she graduates, which would be 1967. So it's still the 60s. But by 1967, men were being drafted to Vietnam who did not want to fight. The Selma March had already happened. Malcolm X had been murdered and his autobiography was in circulation. The Black Panthers had been founded. In other words, by 1967, Baby would have been a lot more clear-eyed about her country, which raises the question, would she still want to join the Peace Corps? In the introduction of author Karen Schwartz's oral history of the Peace Corps, she writes that by the mid-1960s, it was not uncommon for recruiters to encounter students who viewed the Peace Corps as hopelessly irrelevant in the face of urban riots, the civil rights struggle, and America's deepening involvement in the Vietnam War. I can imagine Baby getting radicalized in college and feeling this way. However, she was at Mount Holyoke. Not a college that comes up when thinking of activist campuses in the 60s. And so I poked around the school's archives and 
This is what their website said about the civil rights era. Mount Holyoke is a primarily white institution, and its student population has often reflected that, including in the 1960s. Many white students at Mount Holyoke did not participate in civil rights activism for various reasons, from apathy to racist beliefs. So it's very possible that Baby might have been the most radical person she knew. And also remember that quote that I said about Peace Corps dawning on a sunny day? The author Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman follows that thought by writing, The fact that the Peace Corps ultimately had an evil twin, the Vietnam War, made its purity only that much more important. Here's an example illustrating some of this real commitment to the Peace Corps purity in the face of distasteful American foreign interference. In 1965, the U.S. intervened in the Dominican Republic Civil War. Peace Corps volunteers were there and witnessed their country give aid to anti-democratic forces. In Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman's book, she quotes two volunteers in DR at the time and critical of the American military's actions. But for these two men, it just made them even more committed to the Peace Corps mission. And she has a quote from one 23-year-old who decided, in spite of all of this, to sign up for a second term in Dominican Republic. As he said, he, quote, felt very proud to be part of a U.S. organization that was totally accepted in a situation where there was such an anti-American feeling. And I felt this was what the Peace Corps really means. It really gets to the people. Though how much Peace Corps volunteers could openly express their disagreements with the American government would continue to be a tension, particularly, of course, in the Vietnam War era. Peace Corps officials did their best to contain this. Hoffman quotes the deputy director of the Peace Corps at the time saying, Exporting political opinions of any sort is imperialism. I have to say that's a very clever way to confuse some young, well-meaning, progressive volunteers. The point is that many within the Peace Corps were committed to it retaining a purity and independence from American political aims. Clearly, that was not realistic, but I think it's important to note the integrity of many of the volunteers and also administrators in the Peace Corps in the late 60s. And the Peace Corps itself was very aware of its waning reputation at this time and put out this ad that at first I thought was fake, but it's not. If you told these people that the Peace Corps is the hypocritical extension of an imperialistic establishment's military-industrial complex, they would think you were crazy. And you would be. The other contextual piece I want to highlight for Baby is 1960s gender roles. This is from the Peace Corps documentary Towering Task. You'll hear Maureen Orth, who served from 1964 to 1966. In those days, opportunities for women were very scarce. So the idea of being able to go into the Peace Corps, which was an open-ended adventure where you're totally on your own and whatever happens after two years is what you made happen. I love that challenge. 
In conclusion, I believe Baby would still have remained steady in her conviction to join the Peace Corps, despite the cynicism she was probably feeling about the U.S. government by the time she graduated. Maybe she even thought 1967 was a more important time than ever for liberal-minded anti-war volunteers to represent the U.S. overseas. Okay, so where would she have likely gone? By this time, the Peace Corps was going to a lot more than three countries, but in late 1966 and into 67 saw the expansion of the program to Micronesia. If you're like me, you're maybe like, where is that again? And if you're really like me, you'll have a stress dream where you're on stage at SNL about to do a stand-up set you don't remember signing up for, and all you can think to say to the crowd is, so, uh, who here knows where Micronesia is? Well, it is a region in the Pacific Ocean, north of the equator, roughly in between the Philippines and Hawaii. It's made up of thousands of islands. Probably the most familiar to outsiders are the Marshall Islands. It's a little strange that the Peace Corps decided to send people there because technically Micronesia was not a foreign country at the time. So why was the program bending its own rules? Some context. After World War II, the UN granted Micronesia as a trust territory to the United States. Used to be occupied by Japan, but obviously that wasn't going to continue after 1945. So now there's a new thundering world power holding a region of thousands of islands with different cultures across a span of ocean that's about the size of continental US. What could go wrong? This is a 1946 MGM-produced military propaganda film about the Americans' plans for one now-famous atoll in the region. Have you ever dreamed of living an idyllic existence under the waving coconut palms of a remote South Sea island? Of course you have. For ever since the onerous burden of civilization first began pressing its crown of thorns on the brow of romantic mankind. Some copywriter was working overtime on that one. Let's just skip ahead. Arriving as Commodore Ben H. Wyatt, United States Navy, with a startling request. Will the people of Bikini abandon their paradise so that the United States can use it for a certain experiment with the fantastic, the incredible thing called the atomic bomb? And now some manipulation featuring God. Tell him that's fine. Everything being in God's hands, it must be good. An explanation about where the Bikini people will go. Now Commodore Wyatt must look for another island, an uninhabited island, with sufficient resources to give the people of Bikini a new home, near enough and yet far enough away to be safe. He finds it in Ronjerik, slightly smaller than Bikini and some 175 miles to the northeast. And finally, a justification for the whole thing. Concealed within the fiery terror that is the atomic bomb are hidden the broader and nobler aspects of its mystery. The power for good rather than evil. The ability to save, not destroy mankind. To build him a whole new world of atomically powered peace. It is to this glorious opportunity that the humble Bikinians are contributing their little all. I wonder, would you so readily give up your everything? This coercive relocation happens in 1946 which was followed by nuclear bomb testing on Bikini and nearby Enoweetok, 
including the 1954 Bravo bomb that's power was equivalent to a thousand Hiroshima bombs, radiation fallout has decimated the region to this day. Finally, in the 60s, the UN started to take notice that the United States was completely neglecting its stewardship of Micronesia. This is how it was put by a man named Wayne that I met on Facebook who served in Micronesia at this time. Micronesia had been awarded to the United States after World War II as a trust territory. They were supposed to help the region to develop and modernize. In the late 60s, a UN fact-finding team had found little progress had been made. Russia wanted to take over the trust territory, so the US started the Peace Corps program to quickly bring Micronesia into the 20th century. Some other Peace Corps volunteers at the time were more cynical, according to Karen Schwartz's oral history book, as she wrote, Many of these volunteers saw their placement in Micronesia as a public relations exercise aimed at diffusing increasingly bitter feelings among Micronesian leaders towards the United States. Then she quotes a couple Peace Corps volunteers, including one who said, The Peace Corps could mobilize a number of people quickly and inexpensively to cut off criticism from the UN. Though to provide some balance, she also includes the Peace Corps country director of Micronesia at the time, who responded by saying, There was no design to soften the Micronesians with the Peace Corps. That evolved from the volunteers' own extrapolation of events. He summarizes, it's typical of their age to look for quick answers to complex questions. I wish that was only typical of young people. Regardless of the specific motivations, the Peace Corps sent a shitload of people over to Micronesia in 66 and 67. Too many people, as it sounds, as it ended up being a ratio of nearly one volunteer to every 100 Micronesians. I asked Wayne if, at this time, the volunteers were mostly liberal college grads, and he said, We had a wide variety of personalities there. Many were liberal, but by no means all of them. There were people who had been involved in civil rights demonstrations and other forms of social protest. So babies, people were definitely there. And to take this thought experiment even further than anyone asked, which is, I guess, kind of what I do in this podcast, I wondered how Baby would have reacted to the conditions on the Marshall Islands. Karen Schwartz captured oral testimony from some volunteers sent to the Keeley Island, or Killy, I've heard it pronounced both ways, to work with the Bikini people, which confused me at first because remember this? He finds it in Ronjerick slightly smaller than Bikini, and some 175 miles to the northeast. The Bikini people were sent to Ronjerick. How did they end up on Keeley? Well, turns out Ronjerick didn't have enough food, and people starved, and so the Bikini people moved, and then moved another time before arriving on Keeley. Meanwhile, remember that 1954 bomb with the power equivalent to a 1,000 Hiroshima's? So some other Marshallese were on a nearby atoll called Rongelap or Rongelap, and they were not evacuated like the Bikini people until two days after the bomb. The fallout had already contaminated the houses, water, food, and skin of the islanders. Just three years later, the Marshallese of Rongelap were encouraged to return, despite it being very unlikely that the atoll was safe yet. And 
a little content warning for really fucked up exploitation. I mean, more than you've already heard. An LA Times expose pointed to a transcript of a 1956 meeting where a U.S. official with the Atomic Energy Commission made the case for using the resettlement of Rongelap to test the effects of radiation poisoning on humans. And here's what he said. While it is true that these people do not live the way that Westerners do, civilized people, it is nonetheless also true that they are more like us than the mice. So in 1967, the people of Rongelap are still living on a poisoned island or atoll. Sorry, those are different things. <laughs> I get confused. They won't be evacuated until the 80s by Greenpeace, of all things, and the Bikinians are still stuck on Keeley, which, as Karen Schwartz writes, unlike Bikini Atoll, a crescent of 20 islands attached by underwater coral formations, Keeley is a single island with no calm lagoon providing a rich array of food. Fishing in Keeley's open surf is not only unproductive, but also extremely dangerous. Hope Jenkins was a volunteer on Killy Island during Baby's era, so she'll be our stand-in. Hope said that during training, they were warned that the bikini people of Keeley complained a lot, complained that their new island was not as good as bikini, which, as previously discussed, was very accurate. But she also said that while the islanders were unhappy and told them that often, they were also very welcoming and generous. Hope described the conditions on Keeley as desperate, there was not enough food, and the rare supply ship that may come sometimes would pass them by due to rough waves. And since you've heard me talk a lot, I had my friend Nikki read the rest of Hope's transcript that I wanted to share with you. Despite the fact that they were eager to learn English, we noticed that the school was gradually disappearing. They were taking it apart little by little to use the materials for their houses. We wanted to rebuild it, but the people resisted because this would indicate to the American government that they accepted Keeley as their home and they did not want to do anything that would make it look like they were happy. These were displaced people. The United States government had told them that their land was needed for world peace and now they expected to be treated fairly. We had heard that they could go back to Bikini when their radiation level was safe, but we felt that they had just been forgotten. So we wrote to our senator asking him to look into this. He referred it to somebody else, which we took as a put off. We thought about who else could we alert and decided to write the United Nations Trusteeship Council. Can't you imagine a 22-year-old baby? That sounded weird. Can't you imagine baby as a 22-year-old writing to her senator and the UN about the conditions on Keeley and asking that the bikini people are returned like they've been demanding? which Hope and her husband Todd did believe was safe at this time because that's what someone told them from the Atomic Energy Commission. Probably not the commission to trust based on that earlier quote, but Hope and Todd didn't know about that. Their letter got leaked to the Washington Post and it made a lot of people upset to learn of the conditions on Keeley and also a lot of officials angry at the Jenkins couple. But then, coincidentally, President Johnson was like, it is the time for the people of Bikini to go home. According to Schwartz's book, in 1969, 145 Bikinians were resettled on Bikini, but then after tests in 1978, it was found that residents had unsafe levels of a radioactive metal in their systems, so they were evacuated again. 
The Peace Corps country director of Micronesia would reflect later that while the efforts of the Jenkins couple made it possible for those 145 to return home, he said, but at best it appears to have been a mixed blessing with a high price tag. You know, I'm not against cultural exchange programs. I feel like it's really important for people to understand that their way of life is not the only legitimate way of life. I even did some volunteering in Guyana in 2005 when I actually I met two people from the Peace Corps at that time. I'll maybe talk about that in the Dirty Debrief. But God, this America slash Americans know best has been completely disastrous for the Marshall Islands, even when it was well-meaning. And I really wonder how Baby would feel looking back at her whole experience at my age in her late 30s. Schwartz sums up her observations after talking to dozens of volunteers when she wrote, While many volunteers criticized the Peace Corps for its poor planning, its susceptibility to politics, and its insufficient attention to providing meaningful assistance, they all recite what could be taken for the Peace Corps mantra. It was the most profound experience of my life. I got more out of it than I was able to give. Yeah, so basically the, the, the story of Dirty Dancing takes place at a Catskills resort uh, in 1963, and it's an upper-middle-class Jewish family. That Me goes- giving some important context to journalist and photographer Eric Etheridge. Very early on, uh, there, there's sort of some matchmaking that happens with the adults where they kind of line up both sisters with, like a, a suitable Jewish suitor. And the the youngest one, the main character, um, she gets set up with this guy named Neil, who's the grandson of the resort's owner. From the get-go, he's just very cringe. Like, just, he's, like, kind of dweeby. (laughs) He's, like, unattractive. He has that kind of rich boy privilege where he clearly doesn't know that at all. He just feels like he's inherently interesting because of his wealth. And he's very just, like, hey, like, kind of ladies. (laughs) And um, so the scene... (laughs) that I'm talking about for this episode there everyone's in the ballroom clearly the main character's been forced to dance with him Neil and she's trying to avoid his eye contact and he, but he's like forcing her to talk to him and so he's trying to make conversation and he's like so you're going to study English which is amazing that he just assumes that she's a woman she'd be studying English <laughs> and um and then she because she's like this like you know she's like no I'm studying you know the economies of underdeveloped uh, nations and I'm going into the peace corps And then he kind of surprises her and says, oh, like after the final show, me and some busboys are going down to Mississippi, you know, the freedom rides. And she's sort of like, that's the only moment in the whole film where she's kind of like, oh, like that's kind of interesting. And so I... I so I've been watching this movie since I was a child, uh, definitely way before I even knew what the Freedom Rides were. And you know, I grew up in in Canada, but like because the rest of the film does not paint this guy in a favorable light, I remember being really shocked 
at like how serious the freedom rides were when I finally learned about like and how much ended up being at stake for some people. I actually remember sometime in my 20s talking to my dad about the civil rights era and the freedom rides came up and my dad, I remember him making some sort of comment, like he was obviously just affected thinking about it and thinking about the bravery of the young people. And I was like, the freedom rides? Wait, the thing that Neil did? So this is back in 1961, which is also the year that the Peace Corps was founded. We're talking after the Montgomery bus boycott, but before Birmingham, which we talked about at length in scene two. By 1961, there were a couple Supreme Court decisions ruling that racially segregated bus and bus terminals were not constitutional, but everyone knew that Southern states were ignoring this. So to force the federal government to intervene, black and white activists rode interstate buses into Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And just to expand on a story I mentioned briefly in scene two about Bull Connor letting the Freedom Riders get beat up in Birmingham, I said I would talk about it more and here we are. So the first two Alabama-bound buses rolled in on Mother's Day, 1961. The first bus was met by a mob in Anniston, Alabama. They slashed the tires, uh, which forced the bus to pull over outside of town. There was a mob waiting and they set the bus on fire. You've maybe seen photos of the bus on fire. It's terrifying. And it sounds like if there wasn't a plain clothes cop riding in the bus, who was fortunately not in cahoots with the KKK, more on that later, everyone would have probably died on the bus because he forced the KKK out of the way with a gun as they were trying to trap everyone inside the burning bus. So Bull Connor, the racist police commissioner in Birmingham, him and the press and the police were waiting for the second bus to arrive in Birmingham. But Connor, unlike the waiting press, had been informed that the first bus was attacked and set on fire. He knew this because the FBI kept Connor's police sergeant informed, even though this man had been identified as a Klan agent This only came out later because the FBI also had their own informant in the KKK, and that guy later testified that he had told the FBI that this particular police sergeant was aligned with the KKK, and yet the FBI continued to provide him with intel. So Bull Connor tells the KKK that he will give them 15 to 20 minutes without police intervention to beat the shit out of the Freedom Riders in Birmingham. Our friend from scene two, T.K. Thorne, vividly portrays this moment through the eyes of one of her main sources, Tom Lankford, who was a reporter for the Birmingham News. Tom, while critical of some of Connor's actions, tried to stay in his good books so he could get scoops. And he was in Bull Connor's office when the news broke about the first bus attack in Alabama. The reporters on the ground at the bus stop were unaware of this attack, and crucially, the activists on the second bus were unaware of the brutality suffered by their fellow activists. Then the FBI informant placed in the KKK, playing his role very convincingly, used his intelligence to warn the Klansmen that the new bus was pulling into a different bus station a few blocks away. When they took off running, the -the on-the-ground news team sprinted after them, 
after this, Bull Connor informed Tom Lankford and the other reporters in the room of the change of location. The Klansmen arrived first, immediately assaulting the riders. The news crew arriving shortly after were also attacked as the Klansmen wanted to eliminate any evidence of their beatings. Even by the time Tom Lankford arrived, there were still no cops intervening in the violence. Klansmen spotted Lankford taking photos, and I'll quote TK's book here, Faces flushed with rage, the thugs dragged him down the alley, brandishing blood-stained bicycle chains. One held a lead pipe. Just before the first blow was to fall, he caught a glint of recognition on the face of a burly Klansman. Who was this burly Klansman but none other than the fucking FBI informant? Gary Thomas Rowe, who TK says was a wild card. No one knew for sure where his loyalties lay. So Rowe at the last second recognizes Tom Lankford as being an associate of Bull Connor and so he calls off the beating. Quoting TK again, With a nervous look over his shoulder, Rowe said, We'll have to take your film, Tom. Lankford didn't argue. After unloading the film from the camera, Rowe reached into his pocket and tossed Lankford a wadded dollar bill as payment for the film. (laughs) And there it is, in case you ever wondered if the KKK has a moral line they will not cross. That would be destroying a white reporter's film without proper monetary compensation, as that was the second time that had happened to Tom. So that's just some of the stories of the beginning of the Freedom Rides, fucking terrifying. And I wanted to talk to somebody who knew more about the white activists that put so much on the line and whether they would have any shared characteristics with someone like Neil. I would be curious to sort of talk through some of the greater themes that came through your book in terms of the white, mostly young, well, we talk about the age, the white people that came. The thing is, there were old people who went on the rides. Mm -hmm. Uh, but they weren't around then in, you know, the early 2000s when I went around and found all these people Mm. and and talked to them. But it was essentially a young people's moment. This again is Eric Etheridge. He published this incredible coffee table book called Breach of Peace, Portraits of the 1961 Mississippi Freedom Riders. I'm not sure if he would call it a coffee table book because that maybe implies that it's light reading, but I think the perfect coffee table book is big, easy to look at, but importantly inspires conversation. And this book is amazing for that because it has the original mugshots from 1961, which are very striking in themselves. And then Eric tracked down as many people as he could find in the 2000s and took a new portrait. Each person gets a little bio and a very skillfully selected quote from the interview he did with them. As the book name implies, the mugshots were of the Freedom Riders that made it into Mississippi, where over 300 of them were arrested. I'm just going to read some figures from my Mm -hmm. book here so I get them right. 40% were under 21. 75% were under the age of 30. The campaign was obviously created by CORE and uh, Jim Farmer and his colleagues there. CORE, C-O-R-E, is the Congress of Racial Equality, a civil rights group that combated racial segregation through nonviolent direct action, at least at this time. They had chapters on university campuses, which helped recruit riders. But it was sort of fueled from the beginning, once they said, let's do it. They had a lot of kids who wanted to join, and then it, it kept going because of the other kids by college kids. The black college students in the South were really the phase one, the shock troops, the people who had 
you know, were experienced. They were had all probably done sit-ins the year before, been arrested. You know, they knew about picketing. They knew about sitting in. They knew about these kind of nonviolent confrontations. And they were ready to go. And then the white students came primarily from, like you said, New England, the Midwest, University of Michigan, that kind of thing, Wisconsin, and the West Coast. And a lot of them had, you know, depends on where, what you're saying, where did they come from? If you depend, you're judging by their, their 1961 address or where mm -hmm. they were born. Mm -hmm. But if you go by 1961, there were about a third of the people were college students from California. All my numbers and all my facts and, and anecdotes are about the Mississippi writers. There were yeah. about 450 writers arrested in 61 and 350 of those, not quite, were arrested in Mississippi. Those are the people that we have the mugshots of. That's the group that I've studied. But you can sort of break them all down, black and white, into two big groups, either people who were already experienced in political organizing, activism, marching, sitting in, whatever, or people who are brand new to everything. You see a, a lot of both types in the kind of white students who came from the North. And there are two people that I love to sort of illuminate this particular topic. There, there's one who's in the book that you have, Mimi Real. You know, Mimi was raised political. She was born in 1951 in Brooklyn. Little word typo, Mimi Real was born in 1941, which makes her three years older than Lisa. She had already gone on a march in high school to support Brown versus Board in D.C. And at the time, she was a student at Swarthmore. She had already gotten involved in picketing local businesses in 1960 and supported the sit-ins down south. She volunteered and did a little work at the Corps headquarters in New York before going down to Mississippi. So it was just, you know, it was natural to her. Her parents were very political and very engaged. And so for Mimi, it was just like the next thing. And then after the Freedom Rides were over, came back to Louisiana in 1963 and did over a year of, of voter registration work. Voter registration campaigns countered systemic barriers, including literacy tests, poll taxes, intimidation and violence, and other tactics which kept Black Southerners from voting. Voter suppression is still alive and well in many different iterations today. You see that a lot of people who either stayed in the movement or came back to Mississippi in the South later to continue their work. M Mimi was um, was Jewish, right? Mimi was Jewish. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and I'll talk about I'll talk about that angle okay. in a second. And then Judith was just like Mimi, a couple years older. Judith Wright was born in 1939 in Boston but apolitical, you know, had never done anything. And then I'll just read from her quote here. You know, ever since my teens, I had this strong desire to do something important. The 50s were so bland. And so some of my motivation, honestly, was wanting some more adventure within my life. And some of it was an idealistic feeling that I wanted to make a difference in the world. She was like, aware of what's going on in the world, mm -hmm. but had never, you know, she didn't grow up that way. Mm -hmm. She didn't have those kind of parents. She said, you know, she remembers the moment, all the sense memory and the, all the stuff. She said, you know, I can remember when I first saw the pictures of the sit-ins in 1960. She's a college student at Smith College. I mean, I can see the quilt I was sitting on. I was totally hooked at what was going on in the South. So that was in 60. And then she graduates. Then she went off to join the Freedom Rides. And she was so nervous about being there and about being an outsider 
you know, what do I do? I don't know how to do this. And then she talks about going into the church in Montgomery the night before they go into Jackson. And everybody's sitting around singing these freedom songs. And there's Mimi Real, you know, belting out her freedom song. And she said, I just dove in. I ended up howling out these songs. It was really wonderful. It was my political awakening. Mm. And I think that's true for a number of people who, of the writers, it was their first thing. You know, it led to a lot more engagement. She came back for Freedom Summer in 64. Then she got involved in the anti-war movement. Then she got involved in the women's movement. Then she got involved in the AIDS movement. She spent 10 years working for the AIDS Action Committee in Boston. I think those two, you know, sort of epitomize how people came to the rise. Either it was the next thing to do, or it was like this thing they had always wanted to do, or they saw, you know, they saw a picture. They saw something on the TV, or they saw it in Life magazine, and they were compelled to act. Yeah, I remember there was one guy that who's talked about how, oh, I would talk a big radical game, but I really I right. realized I'd done nothing. Peter um, Ackerberg. Mm-hmm. But yes, he and you can actually see him. He talks about in some of the videos, he said, uh, I don't think this is in the book. But he got himself to Montgomery that summer. He was working with some lefty printer down there, publisher. So he was in the right place. But then he said, you know, I hadn't done anything. So I got to do something. So the day they're going to Jackson, the first day, which is incredibly so many troops, he packs up his little suitcase and he goes to the bus station in Montgomery. And he like says to the National Guardsman, guard, he says, excuse me, I'm trying to get on the bus here. So they break their line and let him through. He goes in the bus station. He buys a ticket to Jackson. It's so improbable that he does all this. And then he gets on the bus with all the other Freedom Riders. Nobody knows him. He doesn't know any of these people. He recognizes Jim Farmer, well-known national person. And he said, I, I sat down in the front seat next to Jim Farmer because I thought, well, if we get attacked, they won't attack him. So I think that's this panic in the moment, bizarro thinking. Well, let me, I'll just mention one more thing about Peter Ackerberg that you reminded me. So I'd forgotten he was the one that, yeah, talked about, oh, I'll just sit next to Jim Farmer and things will be fine. And he was also one of a couple people that said, I truly thought the Kennedys would protect us. Yes. You know, well, they had to figure something out. So in the last three times the writers moved in Anniston, Birmingham and Montgomery, people almost died. I mean, people should have died. So at that particular moment that Peter joined, I think death was a real possibility. And so nobody knew what was going to happen in Mississippi. It was very scary. That was probably the scariest time. Stephen Green, he was a student at uh, Middlebury. And he was, you know, yes. very proud of himself. And he was probably a pretty good student. And I think when he was a senior or junior, William Sloan Coffin came to campus. William Sloan Coffin was a prominent white peace activist and clergyman and actually was also involved in the Peace Corps in its early days. And somehow Stephen ended up giving him a tour of the campus. I Stephen felt very proud of his school. And at the end of the tour, Coffin said to him, well, this looks like a great place to go to sleep for four years. And <laughs> it was like he had been punched. You know? Oh, my God. It led him to Jackson to join the rise. And totally, that totally changed his life. He, he talked about recognition of his predicament. 
in the jail in Jackson when he sort of encounters life at the city jail level. And there's some guy detoxing in the cell next door and freaking out and screaming. And then he has all these conversations with the other freedom riders about wages and labor and unions and politics and stuff. And he goes, look, I was reasonably intelligent 21-year-old who thought he was pretty well prepared to deal with the world. I'd been to France for the summer. I spoke another language, but I didn't have the faintest fucking idea what was going on. I was thinking, God damn it, how did I get this old and be this dumb about how things are? I realized just how deficient my education had been in a broad sense. And with that realization came a bit of anger. Stephen Green, like many of the Mississippi Freedom Riders that were arrested, didn't stay in the city jails because they were too full. So they were moved to Parchman, a remote prison in the middle of the Mississippi Delta, which historian Diane McWhorter called the most notorious prison in the South. There was a uh, Freedom Rider, a Black Freedom Rider, who was in the first bus into Jackson and been an original writer from D.C. named uh, Hank Thomas. You know, they stayed in jail in Jackson for about 10 days or so before they moved them to Parchman. There was a guy, a a white guard, I guess, in the city jail or the county jail who came up to Hank and said, we're going to get you guys up there in Parchman, which was in the middle of the Delta in, in 1960, literally in the middle of nowhere, you know, three hours from Jackson. And he goes, there's nothing, anything that that Bobby Kennedy could do for you once we get you in Parchman. bringing people to Parchment to display the Freedom Riders to. And they could be like very young people, like students or older people, adults. And I think there was a student group coming through and Joan Mulholland found a piece of paper and wrote, I am a white Southerner and held it up Hmm. so that she wouldn't be mistaken for a Northerner by these kids. If I remember correctly, a guard snatched that away from her pretty quickly. The white people frustrated them, and the white women especially frustrated them, because the whole point of Mississippi was to protect white women in in one skewed sense. Right. The racial hierarchy was all about, you know, protecting white women, supposedly. As soon as the Freedom Riders were arrested in Jackson, the Jackson tried to reimpose segregation in jail, which I guess was at least they were being consistent. So the white men went to one cell, the black men went to another cell, the white women went to yet another cell, and you know, so everybody had to be by themselves. A couple of times, yeah, they they put a white woman in in the black cell because they thought she could be black, and even when they would tell them, you know, they would laugh at them and say, "I'm I'm white or I'm black. You don't understand." They were flummoxed by all this and not very good at their own uh, hierarchies. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I can't remember which one who joked. She's like, haha, we integrated your cells. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's all absurd. It was a lot of it was just, it's just absurd. You have to laugh. I can speak to you about the Jewish side of the ledger, if that would be helpful. Yep. Yep, I got a couple sure. of good sort of ways to sort of tackle that. 
There were a handful of writers who had gotten out of Europe as children just before or during the war or after the war. Mm. And they're, they're uh, Albert Gordon and Bill Lyons, Leons, rather, yeah, L-E-O-N-S, he's in the back of the book, or in the first edition. And also um, Alex Weiss, his family got out of Austria, Vienna, uh, at the last minute. I mean, obviously, that was in all their minds as they came of age and then the, seeing the civil rights movement. Alex, I think, is, is especially interesting. He was like a lot of the people who had never been involved in politics before. He'd grown up in California, and he was a little older than the other writers by a few years. But when he saw the pictures of the Freedom Rides and, and the attacks in Birmingham and Montgomery and, and Anderson in the magazines and on the TV, he said, you know, I just, I just couldn't believe what was happening down south. And one of the motivations for joining Corps and volunteering to go on the Freedom Rides is I did not want to be one of those good Germans who just looked the other way. Mm-hmm. And he said that to his father. He says, I'm going to go. And his dad said, no, you're going to get killed. And his son said, you know, well, this is what happened to you. I'm not going to, you know, just stand by when I see it happening again. You know, that was definitely in the minds of the ones that I was able to photograph. And I know there were several others who died before I could did my project who were also motivated similarly. There were Jewish students who were like Mimi in Brooklyn. There was a group of sort of rebel rousers in Minneapolis who came down. There was a guy who's not in the first edition, but he was in the second. His name, Alan Kaufman, was a student at Berkeley at the time. And he had just had a a really traditional Jewish upbringing in California. You know, a lot of temple, a lot of lessons about Egypt and slavery and escape. And when the Freedom Riders came along, he said at Berkeley at that point, I was not a political person, but it was just his upbringing. You know, he says, but in my gut, you know, I felt in my gut that anybody who enslaved somebody had to be dealt with harshly. You know, just from hearing that message at the temple and learning about the war, World War II, I thought, I cannot allow discrimination. So then the rides came along. What does it mean that I have these feelings if I don't act on them? Hmm. I had experienced discrimination. I couldn't imagine what things were like in the South. It was something I had to do, given the way I grew up with, just to be consistent with what I really felt. I wouldn't be myself if I didn't do it. Hmm. So. I'm just trying to tease this out a little bit because I think it's a little different from like Mimi or Alex Weiss, still very Jewish and coming from that tradition. But I think just a real personal sense of how I'm supposed to behave in the world. One of the other things that seemed to come up, there was a one person you interviewed who talked about how he interviewed everyone in the jail and he was surprised right. that there's a strong minority of communists. And one of the things I learned from reading this is from Elizabeth Hirschfeld who's Jewish. And she talked about how like, you know, she was involved in some upper class Jewish organizations that she called, you know, like red diaper baby organizations. And I never I've never heard that before. Um, And so I can only assume, yeah, it's just people who are raised by Jewish communists. There were there were several people that had extremely radical parents. And there was a guy who's, uh, let me look him up, uh, also a red diaper baby from Westchester. They had a cross burned in their yard. It had to do with his father's labor activities. 
But I think there were a lot of people who came out of that very radical, you know, 30s and 40s politics raised by parents who had been radical in those times. I think, you know, especially if you go back a little bit further in Southern history, 40s and the 30s, the Blacks and, you know, or had very few allies back then. But by 61, everybody knew that was very dicey. Yeah. Forever, they've been trying to taint the civil rights movement with any kind of allegations that they could have outside agitators in the South, we would say. But, you know, everybody was a communist. So they were all very careful to sort of talk about that in a, at the time in a different way. So is there anything else that I wanted to ask you about? Or is there anything else you... Uh, you know, I, I think that one way to read it, just based on your description, is clearly the boy is trying to impress her, right? Mm -hmm. That he's a cool guy and has politics. He's reading her as somebody that would be impressed by his engagement. Yeah. He at least he knew it was cool, whether he was actually going or not. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if the movie answers that question. It doesn't answer that question. And I also suspect his parents wouldn't let him <laughs> or like, you know, he's the he's the heir of the resort and uh there's this uh, great story, Marv Davidoff, but he was one of the group from Minneapolis that came down. They, they were all kind of buddies and, and they all kind of came down together. His mother, his Jewish mother, gave him a hard time. Oh, I can't believe you're doing this. You're going to kill me. And he goes, OK, Gertie, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to Mississippi. And he, they all got on the bus and then they made a stop somewhere, the next big city. And another guy called his mom. And she's, he, as Marv said, she laid the whole guilt trip on him. And he got off. He went back. He went back home to college. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. The power of the Jewish mom. The power of the mother. I, I kind of feel like, so if, if Neil did end up going, I feel like the, the, the best case scenario is he ended up like Stephen Green. Like I can very much picture the like, I've been to France. Like right. I, I I understand I, the world. Right. The version of Stephen Green that I had, he you included the story where um, he was near Stokely Carmichael's cell and he right. was like, oh, the school year's ending. This is so great. Right. All the students are going to join. And then Stokely Carmichael's like, hey, did you hear that, everyone? The white boys the and white... girls yeah, from Harvard Absolutely. and Yale are going to save everybody, us. Everybody loves Stokely. Everybody. I think it was amazing to be around. There were these there was a group of guys who came down from um, Cornell. You know, they thought they were, you know, they might be like Neil. They might have been graduate students, but they were students and, and they were political. But they talked to their professors and said, we got to go down. And they said, OK, take this test now and you'll take this other test later. There was a group of four and they drove to New Orleans and then they came back into Jackson from New Orleans to get arrested. One guy was from Texas and they had his car. Mm -hmm. So they thought you know, they wouldn't get in trouble, you know, mm -hmm. if they got stopped in Mississippi. And sure enough, when they got into Mississippi driving south to New Orleans, they got stopped. But the guy from Texas was driving. So he just laid on his accent really thick and said, mm -hmm. I'm just taking my friends down to see my parents and we're going down to Texas and blah, blah, blah. So they got all the way through. I think then in the New Orleans, they bought some kind of tearaway tie because they all wore suits. They all wanted to look presentable. Yeah. And so they bought some tearaway tie in case the police or somebody grabbed at them. Yeah. And I think they bought cups too. 
So that was the kind of collegiate preparation for okay. going into Jackson. Cups and tearaway ties. <laughs> well, that that is perfect, actually, because Neil did go to Cornell School of Hotel Management. Oh, did he? That's where he's going. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, this this is my fan fiction. Is I feel like he he knew those guys, and he's he like, knew hey, these yeah, guys. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go, and they're like, sure, yeah, we'll we'll definitely tell you when we're leaving, and then don't. And thank you to Eric Etheridge. Check out his book, Breach of Peace. In the debrief, I'll talk about the screenplay and some other stuff I missed. Next full episode features two amazing guests who offer some very needed insight for this podcast. Email me your scene six, part one, thoughts to ellie at buttoutbaby.com or message me on the show's Instagram. Voice notes are welcome. Interlude music by Claire Whitehead, aka Midswim. And the intro music by my pal Anna. And thanks for tuning in.